When we are not planning the next Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, we're guessing who done it, debating the ultimate feel-good novel, or reading the stacks of books that lie in our office walls. Then we talk to some of our favourite authors about these books on the Boundless Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast from the Emirates Literature Foundation. Subscribe today wherever you are listening right now. You'll also find a link in the show notes. This session was recorded at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature 2021 with a live audience. Hello! Welcome everyone, physically and virtually, to the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature 2021. My name is Dania and I will be joining you on this, my word, scientabulous session. So, before we start, I would like to thank Oxford University Press and Dubai Electricity and Water Authority for making this session happen today. And I know you're all excited to welcome our author, but let me give you a few facts about Isabel. Isabel is a science writer and author of more than 150 books about science and nature for young audiences. She was awarded the 2020 American Association for the Advancement of Science Subaru Prize for Excellence in Science Books and has previously been shortlisted for the Royal Society Young People's Book Prize. Isabel also writes for science magazines and works with organizations such as Wellcome Trust and the University of Oxford to create outreach resources inspiring children from diverse backgrounds like yourself to pursue STEM careers. Isabel lives in Cambridge in the United Kingdom with her husband and three sons, and she is joining us through Zoom. So please help me in welcoming the fabulous, curious, and inquisitive Isabel Thomas. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. I can see that. Um, um, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the festival today. It is a great pleasure to be able to join you. And of course, I wish that I could be with you in person. Um, but the next best thing is to be able to invite you here into my writing room in Cambridge in the UK. And of course, into my writing brain, which is a very strange place, as you're going to find out. Now, I'm just going to share um, some images with you. So you'll have plenty to look at, even if you can't see me in person. Um, so I'm a science writer, which means that I get to write all kinds of different things. You can see a few of them here. This is basically the first page of my website. So I write articles for magazines, magazines like The Week Junior. I write websites sometimes for all kinds of different organizations. But most of all, I love writing books for the world's most curious people, which is all of you. Now, I've written about 150 books for young audiences. You can see me here adding one of my latest books to the pile. And each one is packed with information about a certain area of science. Now, that's a lot of information and a lot of ideas. But shall I tell you a big secret? A secret, I think, is actually shared by all writers and all scientists. I don't carry all that information around in my head all the time. In fact, when I start writing about an animal or a plant or a planet or a person or even a whole area of science, I might not know anything about it at all. So I might get a call from a publisher, they're the people like Oxford University Press who put the books together, saying, will you write me a book about tardigrades? And I'm thinking, oh, help! I don't know what a tardigrade is. Do any of you know what a tardigrade is? Put your hand up if you do. Oh, I can see maybe one hand going up. But I didn't know, but I do love writing. So I say, yes, please, I'd love to write a book about tardigrades. And then I put the phone down and dash off to the place where I know I'll be able to find out. That place is the library. And we are incredibly lucky, aren't we, in the 21st century to have everything anyone has ever found out available to look up in a book or at the click of a button. And it was in books that I found out that a tardigrade is this. Who thinks they're cute? Hands up. Who thinks they're cute and, and sweet to look at? Oh, and who thinks they're a bit weird or a bit scary? Uh, a few more hands went up for weird or scary. Now, scientists think they look cute. I think they must do because 
Their nickname is water bears. But despite this cute nickname, they may be some of the toughest creatures on earth. Tardigrades can be heated up in an oven and come out alive. They can be frozen to minus 270 degrees Celsius, which is just about as cold as it's possible to get. And they can be alive afterwards. They've even been sent to space on the outside of a satellite. And they manage to stay alive when they come back down to Earth. You just add a bit of water and they jump right back up and, and walk off. How do they do this? Well, it's by going into a kind of deep hibernation, I found. All the water in their bodies dries out and their insides almost turn to glass, which protects all of their cells and all the molecules inside so that they can stay like this for years and come back to life again as soon as a drop of water touches them. In fact, there's an experiment going on by mistake at the moment. A couple of years ago, a space probe carrying some tardigrades crashed onto the moon. And scientists think it's very likely that these guys are going to be walking around alive for probably about 30 years um, if they come into contact with any water. Now, of course, they're not really this big. The ones I showed you earlier have been magnified about 2,000 times by a very powerful electron microscope. But you can see them too in a little less detail if you have a normal light microscope like this at school or at home. And they're not so hard to find really. Although they live everywhere that we find water, from deep underneath Antarctica and lakes, to the moss that grows on walls and in kind of damp patches of gardens. So if you spot some moss growing anywhere, maybe on a, a wall that's in the shade, and you soak it in water overnight, and then squeeze it out and look at those drops of water under a microscope, you may spot them swimming around. They won't look quite like the ones in the picture because it's not an electron microscope, but you'll still be able to see all of their little legs and their little water bear bodies. And you know, that's what I love best about science and science writing. I didn't know any of that stuff before I set out to research and the sheer amount of astonishing things out there to be discovered is just fantastic. So, have you guys ever dreamed about being a scientist and making amazing discoveries? What kind of person do you think you'd need to be? Have a quick think about what kind of person would make a good scientist and share your ideas with the person next to you quickly. If you get good at asking questions, they can take you anywhere. And scientists are brilliant at asking questions. Now, these can be sensible questions like, what is water made out of? Or why is the sky blue? But even better, they can be silly questions. So for example, yesterday I was reading about scientists, recent science news, and these scientists had asked how and why do mammals called wombats, this is a wombat, have droppings shaped like cubes? They're the only cube-shaped droppings in the entire world. Now it turns out, the how is to do with their stretchy stomachs and the why is to help them to stack their droppings up like building blocks to communicate with each other. So you can see that silly questions can lead to some seriously interesting science. Now, you've probably heard of the Nobel Prizes, right? But did you know there's also a prize for the silliest questions asked by scientists every year? It's called the Ig Nobel Prizes. This is an article that I wrote for a science magazine all about them. Now, the Ig Nobel Prizes are awarded for questions that make us laugh first, because they can seem a bit silly, but then make us think. And recent winners include scientists who ask questions like, can twins tell themselves apart? Well, the answer to that turns out to be no. Identical twins are actually really bad at telling themselves apart in photos, which seems like a silly answer, but actually is telling us a lot about how all of our brains actually go about recognizing faces. One of my favorite questions that won an Ig Nobel Prize was, are cats a liquid or a solid? And this question is asked by a scientist called Marc Antoine Fardin. That's the name of the scientist and not this very lovely cat. Now, are cats liquid or solid? At first, it sounds easy to answer. After all, if you've got a pet cat, you'll know they definitely seem pretty solid when you stroke their fur or when they walk across your lap digging in their little sharp claws. 
Now, solids always keep their shape, and yes, cats seem to sh stay cat-shaped, at least when they're standing up. But have you noticed how cats can change the shape of their bodies to squeeze almost anywhere they want to sit, or flow out of your arms if they don't want to be cuddled? Well, these are all properties of liquids. So, our scientists asked, can a cat be both a solid and the liquid, and his mathematical analysis led him to discover that yes, they are both at the same time. When cats are resting and relaxed like this, they seem to flow like liquids, which change shape to fill any container you pour them into. And this sort of makes sense when you remember that cat's body, like our bodies, is about two-thirds water. So perhaps we can start thinking of ourselves as both liquid and solid too. Now, probably the best question that I come across from the Ig Nobel Prizes is, can you levitate a frog? And this was the, um, asked and answered by a scientist called Andre Guy. And the answer is yes. Like all living things, frogs are mainly water, and water is diamagnetic, which means that magnets push it away. They push water molecules away fairly weakly, but if you think about all the water molecules in an animal's body and you get a magnet strong enough, a magnetic field so strong in one direction, the push from that magnet on all those water molecules will balance out the downwards pull of gravity and the frog will hover in midair. And this is actually a picture from the actual experiment of the hovering frog. And the frog was perfectly happy afterwards and joined all the other frogs and was absolutely just loved its adventure. I think it was a bit like must be for astronauts being in space. So science is all about challenging our assumptions and first impressions of the world and finding out something new. And silly questions are absolutely the key to this. So if you ever ask the question and someone laughs at it, do not worry. It can be one of the signs of great science in the making. For example, Andre, the scientist who won the Ig Nobel Prize for levitating the frogs, went on to win a real Nobel Prize for inventing graphene, which is a super thin material made of carbon atoms. And this discovery again started with a curious and silly seeming question. He wrapped a piece of sticky tape around a pencil tip, it was a proper pencil with <laughs> graphite in the middle, and pulled it off and saw a really fine layer of graphite, which is a pure form of carbon on the sticky tape. And he asked, well, what would happen if we made a sheet of carbon like this that's just one atom thick? And then he went on to do it um, in the University of Manchester here in England, and graphene turned out to be an absolutely incredible material that is going to be a big part of all our futures. But it's not just um, modern science that has these silly questions. Scientists throughout history have had their questions laughed at. Even the most famous ones, actually, especially the most famous scientists. Let me share some of their stories with you. So let's say goodbye to our floating frog and travel right back to the beginning of science itself. Now, Al-Hassan Ibn al-Haytham is thought to be the world's very first scientist. He lived in the 11th century, about a thousand years ago, and he didn't have a fancy lab or loads of equipment or any funding. In fact, he did his most brilliant work while he was under house arrest, which means being locked up in your own house. And he asked the question, how do we see now, at the time, this was thought to be a really silly question because everyone thought they already knew how our eyes worked because the ancient Greek philosophers had told everyone and written it down in books and everyone read the books and thought, okay, well, that must be true. It's written in a book. And that most popular idea was that when we open our eyes, rays come out and light up the things we're looking at. Now, Alastan thought this sounded very unlikely. He didn't just believe what he read in books. He set about to work out the truth. And he also solved lots of other mysteries involving light, like how a rainbow's formed. And in the process, he gave the world a brand new approach to understanding things, an approach that became science itself. And Alassane said understanding things was not about reading books and accepting what they say, but questioning everything. 
Um, and this approach was used 500 years later by another very famous scientist, Leonardo da Vinci. Now these, these beautiful pictures from a book um, in the Little Guy's Great Life series, and I do write a lot of science biographies, and it's always such a joy when they get beautifully illustrated like this. Now Leonardo didn't do much studying for books. At the time he lived, most books were written in Latin, and that was a language he couldn't speak. He was always asking questions. We know this because he wrote them down in his notebooks, hundreds and hundreds of questions, like which muscles open our nostrils? Why do both our eyes move together? Why do the legs of a frog look like the legs of a human? And what does a woodpecker's tongue look like? Now, I don't know if Leonardo managed to answer that question, but modern day scientists have. And I'm going to share the woodpecker's tongue with you because it is quite unexpected and strange. Who would think that a bird would have a tongue like this hidden in their head? A tongue so long um, that they have to actually keep it wrapped all the way around the back of their brains as it goes in and out. And obviously they use it. It's eating an apple here in this picture, but actually the woodpeckers will use their tongues to um stick them into the holes and bark and in tree trunks and feel around for insects and then bring it out with a juicy insect trapped on its tongue. Um, and I also just wanted to share that Leonardo absolutely sets a template for silly science because he just would do anything his curiosity made him want to do. For example, um, he once amused himself by dressing a lizard in leaves to look like a tiny dragon just to see what would happen. Now, silly questions have help scientists discover brand new things um, and silly questions have even changed the world. I introduced you to another scientist you've probably heard of, Marie Curie. Um, in the early 1900s scientists noticed that a metal called uranium gave out invisible rays and most scientists at the time thought okay um, but they didn't really pay much attention. They were all actually more interested in x-rays which seemed to be stronger and x-rays were the brand new thing that everyone wanted to find out about. So no one except Marie Curie asked, hmm, I wonder if any other materials give out these strange, weak rays. Um, now, it seems like a sensible question to us, but at the time people thought it was silly to go testing loads of elements and other rocks for um, rays that were so weak. She didn't get any funding, she didn't get a proper workshop to work in, she basically had to work in a rainy, leaky shed um, with a mud floor. Um, and people thought it was even sillier when she started testing a rock, the rock you can see right here at the centre of the picture called Pitch Blend, which contains very small amounts of uranium. So what's the point of testing this rock uranium comes from when you've got uranium itself? Um, obviously uranium is going to have stronger rays. but she got a massive surprise. The invisible rays coming out of this pitch blend were much stronger than the rays from the pure uranium. And this actually led her to the discovery of two new elements, polonium and radium, which were much more radioactive than the uranium. She discovered um, radioactivity itself and this discovery had completely changed the world of physics, of medicine and of manufacturing in the last hundred years. And silly questions also promise to change our world in the future. Questions like, do caterpillars have any superpowers? Hmm. Hands up if you think caterpillars do have superpowers. I can see a few hands moving. You're right. During the first lockdown here in the UK, I wrote about this question and the discovery it led to in a book called The Book of Hopes, which was put together in the UK. It's a book that has a mixture of different stories from about a hundred different authors. It was put together to raise, um, raise funds for the NHS because obviously we're dealing with the corona pandemic. Um, so it was a brilliantly fun story to research and a story that gives us hope about the future. And I made a little film to share the story with you again with one of my sons as the actor. So the scientist um, who led this investigation was called Federica Bertaccini and here she's played by my son Joey. <laughs> 
Our unlikely hero is the caterpillar of the wax moth, an insect with a very bad reputation. Wax moths like to lay their eggs in honeybee hives. When the creamy white caterpillars hatch, they tunnel deep into the honeycomb, chomping their way through beeswax, pollen and honey, and generally causing chaos. Scientists who study wax moths are usually looking for ways to stop them in their tracks. But one day, someone spotted that these caterpillars have a superpower. Federica Bertaccini was cleaning out her beehives when she found a few wax moss caterpillars. Knowing their bees' number one enemy, she popped them into a plastic bag while she finished the job. But she returned to find the bag full of holes. The caterpillars had eaten their way through the plastic and were making a slow getaway. Some people would have found them atop a prison and forgotten all about it. But Federica is a scientist and she was curious. She knew that plastic bags are made from polyethylene, a type of plastic so incredibly tough that blazing sunshine, biting wind, churning water and ravenous microbes take at least a hundred years to break it down. This indestructibility is why most of the plastic humans have thrown away is still piled in landfills, clogging up rivers and floating in oceans. How on earth had three small caterpillars destroyed a patch of plastic in just a few hours? Working with a team of colleagues, Federica began to investigate. They discovered something astonishing. The caterpillars weren't just chewing plastic bags into tiny pieces and pooping them out. They were actually digesting the plastic and using it as food. The next step was to find out how. The world has herbivores, carnivores, and omnivores, but no one had ever met a plastivore before. Three years after Federica's discovery, another team of scientists found the second piece of the puzzle. Wax moth caterpillars have friendly microbes living in their stomachs. These usually help the caterpillars to digest beeswax, nature's version of plastic. But if their hungry host decides to eat human-made plastic, they're happy to switch. Together, caterpillars and microbes are an unbeatable team. It would take 60 wax moth caterpillars a week to munch their way through a piece of plastic as big as your palm. They won't be able to solve the world's plastic problem on their own, but they give us hope that we can find solutions. If we can understand the wax moth caterpillars' plastic pulverizing powers, we might be able to copy them and find a way to break plastic up into particles that can be returned safely to nature. The Hungriest Caterpillar is one story in a vast library that we're only just beginning to read. There is more hope hidden in nature's books and pages waiting to be found. You can join the search. Next time you see something unexpected, pause, look closely and let your curiosity show you which way to go. Thank you so much for sharing that for me. Um, I might be able to share the other video too because apparently I have to have something special installed to share my computer audio through Zoom, which I've only just discovered now, so I'm so sorry about that. Um, and I hope that proves to you that no question is too silly. So how can we get really good at asking these silly questions ourselves? Well, first we'll need a topic to investigate. I want you to all think of something you could write about, but I won't ask you to think of your most interesting thing, as that would be far too easy. So instead, think of something you don't think you would like to read or write about, or you don't think you would ever like to investigate, perhaps even something you find a bit boring. I chose dust because I find that incredibly boring and I think gosh that would be so challenging so just have a little thing for 10 seconds and share your idea of the person next to you or if you're watching at home shout it to the person in the next room I'll just give you 10 seconds to have a think and you can make a note of it or you can just hold your idea in the head so I thought dust which seems pretty dull right um You've probably had a homework topic before, something you've had to write about and just think, oh, 
this is going to be so boring. And it does happen to professional authors too. You know, sometimes I'll get a commission or have to write a part of a book about something I've really never thought I had an interest in before. Is it possible to write an interesting science book about dust? How do we get excited about these topics, which, which, you know, would generally put us to sleep? So I do it by asking silly questions. So I ask myself two silly questions. How far can dust travel? And is dust a good snack? And here's what I found out. Okay, so how far can dust travel? Well, this sounds dark, but it turns out dust is a big traveller. In fact, some of the dust we found all around outside, outside on the pavements and gardens, has fallen to Earth from space as micrometeorites. We're, we've all seen pictures of, um, you know, shooting stars, so larger meteoroids as they're zooming through the atmosphere, lighting up. But actually, much smaller meteorites are, are raining down on Earth all the time, um, all over the place. So if you collect some of the dust that you find outside, um, and if it happens to be magnetic, that's a big clue that that could be micrometeorites. Um, the best way to do it is to put something large, like a large white sheet or sheet of paper outside on a very, very still day for about, about a couple of days, and then um, tip all of the dust into a jar of water, and then use a very strong magnet on the outside of the jar to see if any of that dust is attracted to the magnet. And there you have your very own space rock. Now my second question was, is dust a good snack? Well, definitely not these magnetic micrometeorites. But dust isn't just pieces of rock or pieces of fluff. Inside our homes, almost all dust is flakes of skin, of our skin and our family skin, which sounds a bit yucky to us, doesn't it? But it's really yummy for these animals. These are dust mites. And of course, like those tardigrades we saw earlier, they're not really this big. They're actually so small, you could line four of these up on a full stop. But it turns out they do a really useful job. They live in our homes and they don't really do us, they don't do us any harm at all. People with asthma can find them irritating, but generally they do a really helpful job because the thing it's munching on here in the picture is a flake of skin. So they help to clear up all of that dust that collects in our homes. Um, over time. So if you get good at asking silly questions, you can write about anything in the world. You don't need to be an expert to start with, you just have to be super curious. So let's have a quick go at turning your boring topic into interesting questions. So if you think of that word that you thought of earlier, and I know that some of you have already opened this Padlet link, um, if you haven't opened it yet, you can scan this QR code on the screen, or you can just type the address straight into a browser on your smartphone, or if you're at home, on your computer, and you can open this Padlet. Um, and there you'll see a whole list of questions with one missing word each, and the missing word has been replaced by a star. So I like you to take the boring topic you thought of and turn it into something brilliant by using it to replace that star and come up with some fantastic questions. Um, and I know a couple of you were already doing this at the start. I'm going to show you the version that I got live on my screen. Um, can I just um, so I've got one through already, which is fantastic. Why are slugs so slow? That is a fantastically curious question. Can bathroom plug holes do anything useful apart from draining water? I, I love that you chose bathroom plug holes as your most boring topic. That's absolutely fantastic. Can you make a floor out of seaweed? That's a brilliant question, isn't it? Because there's certainly lots of seaweed and it would be useful to find a way to do it. Um, someone asked the question, what is the world made of? Which I can actually answer right now because in this book, Exploring the Elements, um, I've bookmarked the page here, um, which tells you what the world is made of. It's actually surprisingly few elements. Each square block represents one of the main elements but in either air, the Earth's crust, the core, or the mantle deep in Earth, or the oceans. So we can actually answer that question um, and give our, ourselves a, a list of, 
of the main building blocks of the world. Um, some of the questions are much, much harder, such as how smart are butterflies? That's a fantastic question. You know, very hard to find out what's going in a human brain, let alone an animal brain. That's fantastic. This is a brilliant question. What does no colour look like? Well, if there's no colour, we see black. Um, and scientists always been trying to find, you know, the purest black. So black is a colour. Um, by definition, it doesn't bounce any light back to our eyes. So we were talking about Halazen's discovery that our eyes work by collecting the light that's reflected off objects towards us that's how we see so if no light's being reflected we can't see anything we just see black and um scientists are always trying to make the purest type of black that reflects absolutely nothing at all and then they found in nature that that black was actually already there in the feathers of a certain bird um so they're getting inspiration from nature about how to make these much richer colors why are stars star shaped well this question works really well in two different ways because um, stars aren't actually the shape that we draw them, like I've drawn in this um, presentation. Stars are actually pretty much round, you know, spherical objects in space. So we've got two questions there. What makes them spherical, which is to do with the pull of gravity being even all the way around, but also how do humans get the idea that stars should be pointed like this? Um, and it's possibly because as the starlight travels through Earth's atmosphere, uh, it sort of seems to twinkle and that might make us think that yeah actually we've got little points coming out from different parts of the star there are some absolutely brilliant questions here and i'm going to go back to these at the end of the presentation um so i'm going to switch back to my other screen for the time being um so hopefully you can see that well again um now i'm sure you have some more absolutely brilliant ideas as you've shown just from the questions you put in there children are even better at asking silly questions than scientists are and i know this also because i answer children's questions all the time as part of my job i answer questions for a children's science magazine every month questions like what are feelings made of and why does rain smell rainy and my all-time favourite um, question asked by a child is, could we swim in ice cream? Which is just brilliant. I love questions like this because they take me off on all kinds of different research adventures. So I'm going to share with you what I discovered when I asked or when I tried to answer the question, could we swim in ice cream? Now, imagine the world's biggest ice cream is melted, leaving behind a puddle of strawberry and vanilla and chocolate gloop. It's thick in the water and much more delicious, but could you swim in it? Well, to find out, a team of scientists added, they actually did this in real life, they added buckets of guar gum to the water in a swimming pool. Now, guar gum is an ingredient that makes ice cream thicker, and it made the liquid in the pool twice as gloopy as water, so it's basically just like melted ice cream. And next, the scientists found some excellent swimmers and challenged them to dive in. And amazingly, the swimmers found they could swim through the guar gum just as quickly as they could in a normal pool. Although it was obviously harder to move their arms and legs, the gloopy liquid didn't kind of just move out of the way as easily as water does. So with each push of the hands or feet, the ice cream mix pushed back much harder than water does sending them forwards with much more force. So overall, they were swimming at the same speed. So this shows that yes, we could swim in ice cream if we mounted it first, but don't try this at home because obviously it's much more fun to eat it. So why are these silly questions so good at prompting interesting writing and interesting science? Well, it's all about connection. Silly questions help us to make connections between very different things. And this is the secret to all creativity, which is very important in science. In fact, the brain of one of the world's most famous scientists, Albert Einstein, was a clue to this. Now, Albert died more than 60 years ago, and afterwards his brain was studied by dozens of doctors and scientists. And they discovered that it wasn't about size. Actually, Albert's brain was slightly smaller than average. but his brain has many more connections between the left 
and right sides than most brains do. And neuroscientists think that the more the different parts of our brains talk to each other, the better a person is at processing information and coming up with new ideas. So you know how sometimes you're strolling along or staring out of the window and your brain lights up with a brilliant new idea? Well, these ideas aren't really that new at all. Your brain's just selecting some of the things you've already learned, seen, thought or experienced and combining them in a brand new way. Even Isaac Newton here, whose new ideas included gravity itself, pointed out that he was only using the ideas and discoveries of the past. And he described this as standing on the shoulders of giants. So, where do we find some giants to stand on? Well, reading, learning, experimenting, playing, all of those things you do at school and home are all ways to stuff your brain with raw material, which your imagination can connect in new ways. The second trick is avoid trying too hard to make these connections. You know, have you ever, have you ever found that when you're trying to be creative, your mind can suddenly go completely blank? So let's do an experiment. I'm going to show you a random object and give you 10 seconds to come up with as many uses for it as possible. Okay, count the count the number of uses you come up um, you come up with on your finger. So as many different ways as you can think to use it. Okay. So, I'll show you the mystery object um, and then I'll say, ready, steady, go, okay? Ready, steady, go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. How? Think, how many uses did you come up with? I, I probably only came up with two. One of them is pretty obviously using it as a coat hanger because that's what it is. Um, and the other one was maybe possibly making a wind chime uh, by hanging things from it so they can blow in the wind, make a noise. But you kind of panic when you're forced to be creative like this. It sort of makes your mind go blank. Um, and research has found that new ideas actually come more easily. It's more easy for us to make these connections when we're doing something or even nothing that lets our minds wander freely. Something like asking a silly question. So, if I ask you, how might we use this coat hanger? Why might it be useful in an aquarium? Try the task again quickly and see if your relaxed brain has come up with new ideas. Hmm, I'm thinking maybe, now obviously we could use it to hang wetsuits up to dry for people who might go in and, you know, look after the sharks. Or maybe we could create the frame of a fishing net when we need to scoop out some small fish and study them. Or could we shape the wire into new structures to, you know, get a new coral reef started growing on it. Or perhaps even we could use our coat hanger as a tool to help us hold a shark safely in place when it needs to be seen by a vet. And just by asking this silly question, I'm actually starting to think of all these ways in which this piece of um, wire could be pretty useful. Uh, and that's actually based on a real creativity experiment that's done to test creativity. So try it at home. You give yourself, pick a random household object, give yourself and your family two minutes to brainstorm as many different uses for it as possible. And the person who comes up with the most different uses, which are different from what other people have on their list, is officially the most creative. So creativity in science is all about our brains trying out new and unexpected pathways between things. Um, and then the last little film I'd like to share with you, uh, which I'll ask the team there in Dubai to share because my sound won't work in my computer, is about a scientist called Percy Spencer who connected two very unusual things indeed. A radar machine used to detect rain clouds or aeroplanes in the sky and a bar of chocolate. Now, I never would normally connect these, but the person who did ended up changing the world. So, um, I'll ask, I'll ask the team now to share this film with you. In 1945, Percy Spencer was working in his laboratory designing radar equipment. He stopped to look at a magnetron, a device that gives out a special type of radio waves called microwaves. These are useful for sending radio signals over long distances. A radar unit sends out bursts of microwaves. When they hit objects, they bounce back 
to the radar unit, which measures the strength of the echoes and works out the size and position of the object they bounced off. As he stood next to the magnetron, Percy suddenly noticed a strange feeling. A chocolate bar in his pocket was melting. Now, lots of people would have just thrown the chocolate away, but Percy decided to investigate. He asked silly questions like, what would happen if I held a packet of corn kernels next to the magnetron? Pop! He'd made popcorn! The next question he asked was, what happens if I hold an egg next to the magnetron and try and concentrate the rays by making an oven out of an old kettle? The egg exploded! Percy discovered that microwaves can cook food and much more quickly than a normal oven. He began designing a new type of oven that uses microwaves. At first, Percy's microwaves were bought by restaurants and transport operators who had to cook lots of food quickly. Today, hundreds of millions of microwaves are used in homes all around the world. You may even have one in your own home. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you to Joey again for being my actor there. Um, so, Isabel, so, we have yeah. very eager, curious uh, audience members who are dying to ask their questions. So, if you don't mind, can we give our eager audience a chance to ask you questions? Um, yeah, that's absolutely fine. I, just, I was just rounding up to that part okay. anyway. <laughs> that's completely sure, fine. go ahead. Um, yeah. Um, um, no, yeah, we can go ahead. So I was just going to say, um, although, you know, we've seen the scientific discoveries are often unpredictable, um, but one thing links all of the stories that we talked about today, which is curiosity. So, um, you know, there's still lots of big questions to ask, questions that are still bamboozling scientists. We haven't answered the question, what are thoughts? Why do we only move forwards in time and not back? Or even, you know, even a sim seemingly simple question like why do bicycles still stay upright? These are still questions scientists are trying to answer. Um, and of course, there are even more questions left to ask. And you're the best people in the world at asking questions. So I'm going to hand over to you now and let you ask me some questions. I can't promise I'll have to answer them all, but I, I will certainly have a try. Um, so thank you so much. Um, and yeah, over to you. So if you have any questions, you can step up to the microphones. We have one here. And uh, just keep your mask on, please. Does anyone have any questions? I know we had some eager ones raising their hands earlier. Please come to the microphone. Walk, 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 walk. Mm -hmm. I'll, put all your, I'll, I'll put all your other questions up on the screen as well. So first question. Did you ever have a situation when you had too much silly questions and you forgot some? Ooh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic question. Yeah, as a writer, I think there are always too many questions going on in my head. And it, one of the real challenges as a science writer is to, um, is not just to work out what you put into a book, so which silly questions you answer, but you know, which ones you should leave out so that you don't sort of just bamboozle everyone with, with too much information. So it's always a bit of a balancing act. And I do forget things, you know. Sometimes people say to me, well, you must be amazing at quizzes and things because you've written so many books, but you can't, you can only help a certain amount of information in your head at a time. So, you know, often, even if I, even if I have six months after writing a book, I've often forgotten quite a lot of what's in it. So I can even pick up one of my own books and, and still find out something new because um, your brain can only hold a certain amount of information at a time. But thank you for that question. That was fantastic. We have another one. Yeah, sure. So, uh, one of my questions is, oh, yes. Whenever maybe you're in a really long line and it's moving really slow, you switch to another line. But then the line which you just left gets moving faster. Why is that so? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. It just makes you think of waiting in an hour. Never-ending question. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> it really does, doesn't it? I think, um, oh yeah, I can't give you a definitive scientific answer, but I think it, it's sort of all about perceptions, isn't it? It's what, what we pay attention to. Um, and a sort of grass is always greener. Uh, thing. So as soon as we start paying attention to something like the length of the other line, we start to notice it more and perhaps it just seems like it's, it's moving faster or it seems like we're always on the unlucky side. Whereas when we're on the lucky side, we're not noticing it so much. So our brain isn't like, it's not standing out to us. So our brain isn't picking it up. So over time we get this kind of, um, a, a sort of very biased view of the world where we notice things that really annoy us and we don't notice so much when things are going well. That's a brilliant question though, isn't it? I could write a whole book about that. Thank you. Do we have any more questions? Yes, you have your hand up with the yellow shirt. You can step up to the mic. Going up the steps. One, two, yes. I'll be careful on the step. <laughs> like, what, how does, like, no color look? How does no color look? Well, it looks completely, completely black. So but you that's, just can't. but black's a color. Well, it's, black's sort of the absence of color because colors only come, um, colors obviously made up of light. And when light isn't really reaching our eyes, um, it looks, you know, something will look back to us. But even if I show you something like this, just something I've got on my desk when I was, I dress sometimes as a moth when I'm talking about, <laughs> I write about moths. So that's what these antennae are for. Um, but as you can see, we've got a black feather here, but you can still see it, you know, mainly because you can see light and color coming through it. Um, but also because it's not really pure black, still a bit of light is, um, you know, bouncing off the feather and towards your eyes. But when you actually have this, this sort of purest, pure black, you can't see any shapes at all. You know, you could have like, um, an entire picture or object made of it and it would just look completely flat to you. Our brains just, our eyes just cannot make out the shapes if we actually have purest, pure black because there is no light reaching our eyes. So you can just imagine looking up into the, the sky on the darkest possible night or maybe in the darkest possible night if you're if you're sitting inside maybe a wardrobe with absolutely no light getting with your eyes closed and that's what it looks like when there's when there's no colour. Um, thank you so thank you for that question. That's a really good question. Thank you. We have one more question. Which game was chicken or egg? Ooh, oh, yes, we would like your input on that. <laughs> That's the ultimate question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's a question that children do ask all the time. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to say neither because um, both chicken and, you know, ch egg-laying chickens um, evolved from animals which were already laying out at the time so the actual answer is dinosaur really um dinosaurs and and chickens had common ancestors you know birds kind of were an offshoot of dinosaurs so dinosaurs were already laying eggs long before they evolved into birds and then of course now you can ask the question which came first the dinosaur or the egg but if we keep going back along the tree of life and looking at the ancestors of animals um at some point we'd go from cells so the very first living things on earth were microbes called bacteria which don't you know lay eggs they make copies of themselves by just splitting into two just splitting into two. So it's really very simple. But at some point along the evolutionary process, um, you have, you have, um, an animal where instead of simply splitting into two, maybe they split into two, but keep that second cell, that second copy of itself inside ourselves, almost like an egg. And then maybe they only release that second copy when, you know, they're somewhere much safer in the same kind of way birds do with, with you know, laying their eggs, they, they wouldn't just sort of drop the copy of themselves, which essentially is what, what their offspring are in the middle of, you know, in the middle of the garden. They, they go and put it somewhere really safe, like in a nest. So you can see how, how any sort of cell, um, very early on in the evolutionary process did that would have a massive advantage because they'd be protecting their, 
that cell um, until they are in the right kind of conditions to give it a really good start in life. So you can see that there's a strong kind of um, natural selection there for anything that kind of um, creates an egg and, and keeps it safe. So um, it's a long, 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 long web of history to untangle happening over billions of years, but it's incredibly interesting once you start to, to look at it. But yeah, the short answer is neither. It was a dinosaur. <laughs> Thank so you. we have time for one more question Brilliant. and she is waiting. So can we have a question in who came first? Okay, go ahead. Is it possible to travel at the speed of light? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, oh, gosh. It would... It is if you're, I think the answer to that is really comes from sort of the work of Stephen Hawking, um, which I, I actually wrote a biography about him, so I did look a little bit into it. And he was thinking like, if it was possible to travel at the speed of light, essentially you'd be able to time travel when you were close to a black hole. So it's that concept, you know, you may have heard of called wormholes. But in order for that to happen, you would have to be, um, you know, because basically only light travels at the speed of light, but if you have the absolutely intense gravitational field that you do around a black hole, you could perhaps speed up um, regular atoms or ions, which are just atoms which have lost their electrons, up to the speed of light. But in order to do it, you'd have to be the size of an atom. So <laughs> not possible for humans, but perhaps possible for very, very small particles in very, very extreme circumstances. <laughs> So Isabel, we unfortunately are running out of time, but the audience has so many more. Would they still be able to submit their curious questions to um, via your Padlet? Yeah, via the Padlet, that would be fantastic. And what I'll do is I'll set it up so that I can comment and answer them under your questions because I love collecting. Okay, curious. so Isabel can comment and help you maybe answer some of your curious questions. And... Um, we would like to say thank you to Isabel for being with us today. We really appreciate you being here and giving us all this wonderful information. I hope everybody came out will come out with something interesting that they've learned today. So can we please give Isabel Thomas a huge, huge round of applause. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. So don't uh, ever stop asking curious questions maybe one exactly. day all of you will write uh, and answer these questions and solve the mysteries um, i would like to say thank you to uh, dubai electricity and water authority and oxford university press for sponsoring this session i would also like to say thank you to everybody in the audience and virtually who watched us today so a big round of applause for all of you thank you for being here can you also please help me in thanking the wonderful AV team who made this happen? Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Our title sponsors, Emirates Airlines. Our founding partner, Dubai Culture. And our festival parent organization, Emirates Literature Foundation. And last but not least, I would like to say thank you to the volunteers who are helping with this session as well. Thank you so much Thank for being you. with us.